Let me uh, invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're back in Acts. And uh, we're in chapter 17. And our reading today will be verses 16 to 34 as we look at making the making known the unknown God. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read from Acts chapter 17. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers. Excuse me, I'm in 18. That's not 17, is it? I was just seeing if you were listening, if you're paying attention. First mistake I've made this year, I think. Anyway, it will be followed by many. Now, when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even to some of your own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed. Excuse me. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Aeropagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that your spirit would empower both the one who speaks and those who listen to benefit in the greatest way from the preaching of the word applied by the spirit and may you be lifted up and seem to be uh, the God who is may you be known today and we pray in Christ's name amen there's something that's uh, absolutely enthralling about the apostle Paul in Athens the great Christian apostle amid the glories of ancient Greece of course, Paul had known about Athens since his boyhood. Everybody knew about Athens in that time. Uh, um, everybody knew Athens had been the foremost Greek city-state since the 5th century B.C. Even after its incorporation into the Roman Empire, it retained a proud intellectual independence and became what is known as a free city. It boasted in its rich philosophical tradition inherited from people you're familiar probably with, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, and of its literature and architecture and art and of its noble achievements in the causes of human liberty. Even in Paul's day, it lived on the glories of its great past and was a comparatively small town by modern criteria. At this point, in the history of Athens, there may have been 10 to 12,000 people there. Uh, before that, after having a 27-year war with Sparta, uh, the population was reduced, and it was sort of living in the afterglow. But this was the first time Paul had actually visited Athens, of which he had heard so much about, arriving by the sea from the north. His friends, who had given him safe escort from Berea, as he was being chased by enemies from Thessalonica, he had asked them to send Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible, and he was hoping to be able to return to Macedonia, for it was to Macedonia, if you remember, to which he had been called. Meanwhile, he waited for the re revival. He found himself alone in the cultural capital of the world. What was Paul's reaction? What should be the reaction of any Christian who visits or lives in a city which is dominated by non-Christian ideology or religion? A city which may be aesthetically magnificent and culturally sophisticated, but morally decadent and repugnant and spiritually deceived or dead. And so we want to move on and look at Paul's uh, ministry here in Athens. By the middle of the first century, as I've already said, Athens was a city in decline uh, from its earlier glory, eclipsed by the growing commercial and political strength of nearby Corinth. Corinth was a city blowing and going at this time in the history. Uh, um, so Athens remained its renown, retained its renown in uh, the religious and cultural and even intellectual matters. Um, 
They were especially um, uh, well known for a reputation for certain dilettantism, that is an idle curiosity, more interested in intellectual novelty, novelty than in the truth. The Athenians' religious devotion to the gods was attested by the abundance of images found throughout the city and shrines. The Parthenon and some of the temples on the brow of the Archopolis, Arco or Acro, Acropolis, Acro means height, polis means city, so it was a high, uh, flat place just outside of the city uh, where, that everyone could see. Uh, visible from the Agora, that is the ma uh, marketplace, where Paul reasoned daily with anyone that would enter into a dialogue with him. The people of Athens were indeed very religious. While popular piety kept... Athens' reputation for devotion to the gods alive, the leading philosophical schools of the time, Epicureanism and Stoicism, were subtly undercutting and modifying traditional religion and mythology. Paul's disputants at Athens uh, were Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and so we're going to see in Paul's speech from the Areopagus, also known in Rome as Mars Hill, uh, Paul's speech addresses uh, underneath most of the tenets that both the Epicureans and the Stoics held to. And we'll talk about that in a moment because this is a brilliantly stitched together speech. Some have complained about this particular um, speech that Paul made because it doesn't include the cross. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 that I preach Christ and him crucified. And yet there's no mention of the crucifixion in this particular speech. Although it does mention that he had reasoned daily with the Jews at the synagogue, the God-fearers, and even people in the marketplace about Jesus and about the resurrection. So incorporated under the concept of the resurrection is the person, life, and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, I think it's a brilliantly put together uh, message from the perspective of its interplay with the worldview of these two schools, which also the Areopagus was where Socrates drank the poison uh, and committed suicide, uh, and that was uh, explained to us by his disciples. And so Luke is sort of playing off that same concept to get resonance with the people here. So who were the Epicureans? We all know about Epicureanism, don't we? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. But that's a slogan and very reductionistic. Uh, the Epicureans were a little more thoughtful than that. And so I want to go over, just for a brief paragraph, what the Epicureans were all about. Epicurus was hailed by intense loyal disciples as the one who had saved them from their religious delusion and its resultant obligations. Lucretius, for example, praised the courage and insight of the Epicurus materialistic philosophy. You know what materialism is. There is no spirit. It's all matter. And, and there is no soul. It's all chemical, it's all material, and so that's what Epicurus was. And his philosophy, by which he uh, tamed religion 
and by his victory, man ascends to God. According to Epicurus, the gods, although they probably exist as serenely aloof from and indifferent to human affairs, God was not near. He was transcendent, totally, wholly other in their worldview. The world was not created. It has no matter that makes up the soul. Uh, excuse me, the world was not created and has no comprehensive purpose. There is no future life. Since at death, the refined matter that makes up the soul evaporates into the atmosphere. So you just sort of ooze back into the cosmos. That was their view. Uh, since there is no future life, then uh, there's no fear of future judgment or encouragement by the promise of future reward or by the threat of divine intervention in the present life. So basically they had removed God from life by making him so transcendent and so uh, aloof from uh, the world that there were, you had nothing to do with him. And so therefore life came from nothing, life ends in nothing. And so how life is supposed to have meaning between those two poles, you'll have to ask Epicurus, though most of you won't see him probably. If you know what I mean. Consequently, the wise contemplate gods not with fear or gratitude, but with admiration for their life of undisturbed pleasure. Their life was do whatever gives you the most pleasure and avoids the most pain. And so, rather than seeking to placate the gods, Epicureans concentrated on avoiding pain and pursuing personal peace through the pleasures of mind and friendship. I think you could find a few followers of Epicurus in Las Vegas, even today. The Stoics, on the other hand, were quite different. Uh, they were called Stoics because they gathered on a porch, which in Greek is Stoa, S-T-O-A. And so they picked up their name from Stoics. And most people, when they hear the term Stoicism, think of having a stiff upper lip, uh, not reacting, just, you know, gutting it out. But Epicureanism repudiated traditional Greek mythology. Stoicism reinterpreted it. Although they were materialists, like the Epicureans, the Stoics affirmed that a mind permeates all reality, a fiery breath, as it were, that they called reason or logos. Since they conceived of it as the rational principle that permeates and connects all beings and events. The Lagos is the divine Theos. Stoic poets could personify this principle as Zeus. And there was a hymn to Zeus written by Cleanthes, for example, is a song of praise to the Lagos, the universal law that ties reality together. Thou hast, thou fitted all things in one, the good with the evil, and thy word should be one in all things abiding forever. That's what they said. The concept of cosmic rationality and unity enabled the Stoics to offer an intellectual defense of such popular practices as divination, omens, and magic. So the Stoics were into serious magic. This, uh, since all human beings, they said, contained a spark of the Lagos, Stoic authors uh, could say that this Lagos equals God. 
We are all his offspring, a confession that Paul would quote and reinterpret. The goal for the Stoic was to conduct one's life in harmony with the Lagos, for such an approach brings self-sufficiency, a contentment and imperviousness to external events or fluctuating emotions. So we got two very different philosophical schools here. One is into empiricism. Life is a big experience. God's not around. Pretty much do as you please because you're not going to be judged for it. Either uh, you didn't come from anything. You're not going anywhere. So just grab life and try to suck out of it all that you possibly can because you're just eventually going to fade away back into the cosmos. On the other hand, you had the Stoics who were very much into the imminence of God, uh, the, the impersonal logos, the, the rational mind behind uh, all of creation. Let's see how Paul addresses these Greek intellectuals by first thinking about the strange ideas that pique the Ethereum, Ethereum, uh, Athenian excuse me, curiosity. Paul's remarks uh, before the Areopagus concurred with the philosopher's critique of popular the uh, theism, polytheism, and idolatry. But Christ's apostle also challenged, cherished Epicurean and Stoic convictions. The intermingling of concurrence and contradiction illustrates the paradoxical theme that pervades the text. The, the Athenians know of God whose message Paul is preaching, but they do not know this God. By the way, everybody knows God. Everybody knows there's a God. Don't be impressed with atheists ever. R.C. Sproul used to say regarding atheism, he said, it's not that you don't believe there is a God. You know there's a God. It's just that you can't stand him. And that is the truth. You are made in God's image. God stamped his image upon your being, and you know there's a God, and you know one day you're accountable and will have to answer to this God. And so Paul doesn't play. He goes straight to the point. We see Paul in Athens, and he just comes unhinged. He has a meltdown as he looks around and sees all of the idols. And just to cover their bases, they even had an altar to the unknown God to be sure that everything was covered. But Paul begins in this text to challenge some of the cherished beliefs that were um, uh, held in the city of Athens. Paul is preaching that they do not know this God because they know something of the true God. Paul was not an advocate of foreign gods as they supposed. Rather, he brought a word from the God to who they themselves had erected a shrine. Their own poets displayed enough knowledge of God to show the folly of idolatry that even filled this city. On the other hand, the true God was completely unknown to them, as though they were groping in the dark to find him. Luke repeated reference to the knowledge signals the importance of this theme. May we know this new teaching in verse 19. We wish to know what these things want to be. To the unknown God, what are you worship without knowing? God, having overlooked times of ignorance, now commands all people everywhere to repent. 
By the way, every time Paul refers to ignorance or uses the word ignorance, it is the word agnostic, or the word we get agnosticism from. Which means if you're not an atheist, you're an ignoramus. If you're an agnostic, right? That's pretty much what Paul's saying. Uh, you may not find that humorous. I do. The Athenians, in their religious and philosophical traditions, had admitted they knew that they did not know what they needed to know about the one who controlled their lives. That admission was Paul's starting point. Now, Paul's hearers could not be expected to admit their ignorance readily. The intellectual pride tipped its hand as they called him the scavenger. The word was applied to birds that scavenge for seeds or to rag pickers who scavenge uh, through discarded clothing or to academic parasites who pick up others' juicy ideas without understanding them themselves. In the philosopher's eyes, Paul was patching together his bizarre message from the odds and ends of other people's ideas. How else could he have linked a god with the Jewish name Jesus with a new goddess bearing the Greek name Resurrection Anastasis, which was a Greek goddess? The speculation that Paul was preaching foreign gods and the comment that he was bringing foreign ideas to our ears echoed the charges that led Socrates' suicide 450 years before. In the time between Socrates' day and Paul's, Alexander's building, empire building had brought Greece into increasing contact with religions of Egypt, Persia, and other regions. Thus, the Athenians, addressed by Paul, were more tolerant of alien options and opinions than were Socrates' contemporaries. Paul's listeners were intrigued by the religious novelties from afar, and their cosmopolitan curiosity should not be con uh, confused with a genuine, real openness to Paul's messages. Epicureans disapproved of undue attention to any gods, foreign or domestic. Stoics recognizing that traditional Greek religion had a certain political usefulness, would hardly uh, welcome exotic sub-Athenian conceptions of deity. Paul faced an attentive but an incredibly resistant audience. And so he begins with the Athenians' own confession of their ignorance, erecting a shrine to an unknown god. Whatever origin and interpretation the Athenians attached to the shrine, Paul knew the god whom the residents of Athens, despite their wisdom, did not know. As at Lystra, Paul described this god as the creator of all and the lord of providence. At Lystra, the apostles pointed to the phenomena of nature and agriculture as God's testimony to his dominion. In Athens, the emphasis fell on God's control of human affairs. He created humanity from one ancestor and determined the temporal and geographical limits that delineate diverse ethnic groups in the human family. So... At several points, Paul's message corresponded formally to some of the tenets held by the Epicurean and Stoic listeners. He recognized there was some common grace insight in what they understood. 
His affirmation of the unity of humanity and divine order in human affairs would strike a, a, a responsive chord in the Stoic mind. Epicureans picturing the gods as aloof in their self-sufficiency and uninterested in mere humanity would have mentally applauded Paul's insistence that God had no need of man-made shrines and sacrifices. Both schools could have agreed uh, with the insight that we are all God's offspring, showing the folly of equating a gold, silver, ivory, or stone image with the divine being. The Stoics, because they equated God with the fiery reason that permeates the universe, the Epicureans, because their gods were far removed from grosser forms of matter from which the statues of the Acropolis had been sculpted. So let's talk about the God they knew and the God they didn't know. On the other hand, the unknown God proclaimed by Paul was profoundly unlike the deity imagined by the philosophers. While Epicureans believed correctly that God is not dependent upon human life, they were wrong to think that he is uninvolved with humanity. The true God is intimately related to his creatures, giving them life and breath and everything in him we live and move and have our being. Last week I preached on the presence of God, and I talked a lot about the aseity of God that God has within himself the power to be and everything that exists it finds its being out of God who uh, is eternal and so the true God is intimately related to his creatures giving them life breath and everything Paul's thoughts not only uh, reflect the biblical account of creation but also the prophetic comments that God provides the breath to, and of life to every generation. Isaiah 42 says this, Thus says the Lord God who made the heaven and stretched it out, who made firm the earth and the things in it, and gives breath to the people on it, and life to those who walk on it. Paul's critique of idolatry goes beyond exposing the foolishness of equating carved marble with the creator of the universe. The problem with idols on the Acropolis was not that they were composed of the wrong grade of matter as the Epicureans held. Rather, their conceptions of God were fatally flawed because they were the production of human cleverness. These Athenian intellectuals should have known better than to suppose that God is like an image made by man's skill and thought. Paul suggested that all ideas about the nature of the divine that arise from human speculation alone are totally inadequate. The philosophers' mental constructs, no less than the sculptor's marble statues, are produced by a blind groping for God whose existence is undeniable, but whose character is unknowable through human wisdom alone. G.K. Chesterton once said that when a man goes to a brothel and knocks on the door, he's looking for God. And that is exactly what Paul is saying. Everything that drives us to seek meaning, that drives us to seek purpose, that drives us to question why am I here who made me what's the purpose of being here what's the goal of life what happens to me when I die where am I going how's it going to work out or as the old song uh, Dionne Warwick 
used to sing, What's It All About, Alfie. That, that dates me, I'm sure. Any of you remember that song? You do. I know you do. So, here's what's going on at Athens. Paul is speaking, uh, and his decisive point in the presentation came when he surveyed the history of God's self-revelation to humanity. Previously, God had overlooked, but not condoned, the ignorance of people who failed to recognize him as the creator and ruler of human affairs, but a new stage of his self-revelation had arrived in which he called all people everywhere to repent. But even in those earlier times of ignorance, people should have known better than to identify the deity with idols made out of inanimate minerals, since people are God's offspring and image. Now Paul declares, God is speaking to all people everywhere in a form that is clear, bringing a message that is inescapable. And what marked the transition from the times of ignorance to the present time of God's universal call to repentance, God designated the man who would carry out final judgment, demonstrating that man's authority by raising him from the dead. See how pivotal, how foundation the bodily resurrection of Jesus is. With this one sentence in verses 30 through 31, Paul moved the discussion into areas that directly challenged the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. The significance of the eschatological goal of history, the accountability. By the way, both the Stoics and the Epicureans viewed history as circular. History's always going in a circle. We hear that. Uh, often now being said uh, that history is circular, that events repeat themselves over and over in history. Christianity doesn't believe that, and the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says history is linear. It has a point where it begins. It has a, a telos, a goal toward which it is going. History is linear. And so Paul is saying that in preaching to these people, that there is something called eschatology. There is something that is called the eschaton, the end of all things. And so he challenges them. Uh, and uh, he challenges them about their accountability before the justice of God, about the unique authority of the man appointed by God through resurrection to administer divine justice. While Epicureans, gods had no interest in human affairs, Paul was proclaiming a God who would call all to account in the future judgment and was calling all there present to repent. They held that personal identity ceases at death, which conveniently excludes the prospect of future judgment. Paul, on the other hand, proclaimed a God who had raised a man from the dead who becomes the judge of all. Again, Stoics took comfort in a cyclical conception of history in which three phrases, phases, excuse me, were rehearsed over and over in successive regenerations. The creative fire of the Lagos produces a period of stability in the universe, but that stability eventually gives way to dissolution and conflagration. When the destruction has run its course, the cycle begins again. But Paul, on the other hand, proclaimed a God who directs history linearly toward his intended goal, times of ignorance in the past, uh, a time of opportunity to repent in the present, and a time of judgment in the future. 
Just as God has control over human affairs, and it was all-inclusive during the time of ignorance, so he is summoned to repentance in the present time uh, during the times of uh, ignorance includes everyone. Whereas in times past, now let me, let me show you what Paul is doing. And, and here's the wisdom of it. I might should save this for application, but I feel I need to say it now. Why is he doing this? Why is he so involved with the philosophies of his day? Why doesn't he just stand up and preach the gospel for heaven's sakes? Because he, look at his audience. These are 100% genuine pagans. They don't have a Bible. They've never read the Old Testament. They know nothing about Scripture. They have nothing in the theological bank to withdraw from. And so Paul begins where they are and tries to show them how Christianity sees ultimate reality. How Christianity shapes a worldview that includes some of what they think, but trumps a lot of other stuff that they think. And so Paul is brilliantly doing what I would call pre-evangelism here. In a, in a sense, he's preaching the law before he brings in the gospel. Uh, one thing that bothers me about people is they, they run right away to invite Jesus into your heart. He will save you. He will forgive you if you ask him. Most people want to know, save me from what? Why do I need that? Why do I need, you know, what do I need Jesus for? And what Paul is doing is he's showing them this is what you need Jesus for. There are uh, reasons for apologetics. There's a reason to lay a foundation. And that's why the gospel doesn't click because they have nothing in the bank to draw from. But they are, notice Paul talks about this, they are seeking. So it is legitimate to say that there are seekers. Acts 17 says every missionary loves Acts 17. Every theologian doesn't. <laughs> Because they like to talk about, well, Paul said in Romans 1, this is the way it is. People are suppressing uh, uh, the idea of God by their evil and unrighteousness, and they are. And yet the same guy that wrote that said this. And so what's he saying? Yes, there is something in everybody's heart that's looking and searching and longing. Don't forget that. Do not forget that. In our Reformed theology and in our doctrines of grace, Sometimes we can overlook the fact that there is some common grace insight that people have. There is something to reach out to. There is something called a point of contact. Okay. And so, uh, as we move on, just as God's control, Paul says, over human affairs is all-inclusive, he has summoned repentance in the present time to men that inhabit the whole earth. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Formerly, God has appointed their boundaries. The man whom he will judge the whole inhabited world, the man through whom he will judge that, this is no foreign God smuggled in uh, to sophisticated Athens in a ragpacker's pack, this is the creator and master of all that is, who now commands all people to turn to him for refuge from his coming judgment. You need to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from God. That's who you need to be saved from. Saved from the righteous judgment, justice, and wrath of Almighty God. 
every person needs to be saved from that. And that's what Paul is saying here. And so this creator and master of all, um, the religious pluralism of the past was not a beautiful manifestation of cultural diversity to be celebrated, but a pitiful expression of human folly and ignorance. From Paul's perspective, the age of religious pluralism is over for now God is calling those who have worshipped idols of stone or wood or gold or images of the mind out of their darkness into his light his message of salvation reaches as far as the worldwide authority in creation and providence although God has overlooked it in the past this did not excuse their idolatry when what when God overlooked past ignorance, he was not forgiving guilt, but postponing judgment. Let me repeat that. When it says that God overlooked past ignorance, he was not forgiving guilt, but postponing judgment. Peter had said that the people and leaders of Jerusalem had acted in ignorance in repudiating God's holy servant. Their ignorance, however, did not obviate their need to repent in order for their sins to be forgiven. Paul insists that the Athenians' ignorance in the past, far from excusing them, made it all the more necessary for them to repent in the light of coming judgment. Paul didn't pull any punches. Uh, rhetorically speaking, he went for the juggler. Paul's address ended by dealing with the matters that caused him to be brought before the Areopagus, Jesus and the resurrection. In contrast to other sermons in Acts, he made no mention here of the miracles that attested uh, Jesus' authority or his death as the way to forgiveness or of the testimony of scriptures. Instead, Paul focuses on two major events. He focuses on Jesus' resurrection and the coming day of judgment. Jesus' resurrection from the dead was God's proof that he has designated him to be his agent of righteous judgment. The resurrection of Jesus is either the best news you will ever hear or know, or it is the worst news you will ever hear or know if you don't believe it. This connection between Jesus' resurrection and his authority as judge was an emphasis of preaching throughout. Because Jesus, who is the coming Lord, who would judge the world in righteousness, Paul proclaiming him among the nations, calling upon them to abandon their futile gods they had worshipped and to bring glory to the God who had created heaven and earth. Paul moved the discussion from a mere critique of idolatry with its cultured listeners could agree with to a declaration of their accountability before a sovereign God who is both transcendent, contrary to Stoicism, and imminent, contrary to Epicureanism. Paul advanced from the generalities of God's creation and governance to the specifics of Judgment Day and a judge already appointed to minister justice on that day. What does the book of Ecclesiastes say? It says, because the judgments of God are slow, the hearts of men are fully set to do evil. Because the wheels of justice with God grind so slow, they interpret that meaning that there really is no God I have to give an account to, and so their hearts are fully or completely set to do evil. 
Paul is entering into that arena and trying to help them see and wake up that judgment day is a reality. And we know it's a reality because the judge has been raised from the dead and has all authority to do so. Paul's message, of course, received a mixed response. Some scoffed at the thought of resurrection, especially in Athens. Because Anastasis, which is the word resurrection in Greek, was a god, a female god they worshipped. And so some scoffed. That would have included the Epicureans, although the thought of an individual return to physical life after death wouldn't be any more palatable to the Stoics. Others, their interest piqued, wanted Paul to explain his message more fully on another occasion. Still others became Paul's associates and disciples, having believed the gospel. These new believers had begun the day as those not knowing the true God, mocked his messenger as a rag picker, found his message of Jesus in the resurrection confusing or silly, Although not previously exposed to the preparatory promises of the Scripture, they came so far so quickly only through the power of the apostolic word applied by the Spirit, drawing Gentiles to give God glory. So the Areopagus Address in conclusion. The Areopagus Address reveals the comprehensiveness of Paul's message. He proclaims God in his fullness as creator, sustainer, ruler, father, judge. He took in the world of nature and of history. He passed the whole of time in review from the creation to the consummation. He emphasized the greatness of God, not only as the beginning and end of all things, but as the one to whom we owe our being and to whom we must give an account. He argued that human beings already know these things by natural or general revelation and that their ignorance and idolatry are therefore inexcusable. So he calls on them with great solemnity and passion before it was too late to repent. Now all of this is part of the gospel or at least the indispensable background to the gospel without which the gospel cannot be effectively preached. Many people are rejecting our gospel today not because they perceive it to be false, but because they perceive it to be trivial. People are looking for an integrated worldview which makes sense of all of their experience. And we learn from Paul that we cannot preach the gospel of Jesus without the doctrine of God. We cannot uh, preach the gospel of Jesus uh, or the cross without the creation or salvation without judgment. Uh, today's world needs a bigger gospel, a more full gospel of the Scripture, what Paul's letter in Ephesus was prepared to call the whole counsel of God. People need that. It was not only the comprehensiveness of Paul's message in Athens, which is impressive, however, but also the depth and power of his motivation. Why is it that in spite of the great needs and opportunities of our day, the church seems to slumber peacefully on and that so many Christians are deaf and dumb, deaf to Christ's commission, and tongue-tied in testimony. It's because we don't speak as Paul spoke. We don't feel as Paul feels. We've never had what he had coming unglued and unhinged in indignation over the idolatry. And so idols, as Paul has shown us in this text, are not limited to primitive societies. 
they are, there are many sophisticated idols too. An idol merely is a God substitute. Any person or thing that occupies the place which God should occupy is an idol. Covetousness is idolatry. Ideologies can become idolatries. For those of you who are struggling with what's going on in our country, let me assure you to not be careful to be careful of turning any ideology into idolatry, saying that unless this happens, there's no hope. Our hope has never been in our political system, and God is reminding us that it's in Him and in Him alone. Fame, wealth, power, sex, food, alcohol, drugs, parents, spouse, children, friends, work, recreation, television, possessions, online streaming, even church, religion, and Christian service can become idols. Paul was deeply pained by the idolatrous city of Athens. Have we ever been provoked by the idolatrous cities in our contemporary world? Surely you felt grief over watching the lostness displayed before you every day. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this chapter in the book of Acts. It's so much here. Twenty sermons could be preached on this particular chapter. But we thank you for the time we've had together to consider how Paul makes known the unknown God and commands all people everywhere to repent. And that means us. That means us as well. I pray that our repentance would be daily, that our repentance would lead us into the joy of knowing that we couldn't be more deeply loved or cared for or adored than how our Father loves us. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, we pray that you would be glorified in all we say, sing, and do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.